Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another interview with an awesome guest, Dr. Taylor Sear, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at Samford University, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. Taylor studied philosophy and religion as an undergrad at Florida State, where he also completed his master's degree in philosophy. He then earned his PhD in philosophy from the University of California, Riverside, where he wrote his dissertation on free will and moral responsibility. In addition to issues related to free will, he's interested in the philosophy of death, immortality, personal identity, and time, especially questions around the possibility of time travel, which I'm excited to get into with him. (laughs) Taylor's also the co-host of a great new podcast called The Free Will Show, so Go and subscribe to that and watch all those videos. They're awesome. Um, or, or audio. I forgot if you yeah, have no video. <laughs> all right. Let's go listen to the audio. Um, Taylor, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Well, thanks for having me, Parker. This is awesome. Yeah. And uh, so this is this is not recorded live. And part of the reason is to save you from Dr. Andrew Moon, who seems to <laughs> just troll you on, on every live video you're on. That's so right. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that today. I'm very glad about that. I've only done a couple of live things and Andrew has been in the comments for, <laughs> for both asking questions. Yeah, he's, he's a good dude. Hopefully uh, he'll come on my podcast as well. Yeah. Um, Taylor, so uh, real quick, why did you choose to go into philosophy instead of theology? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I kind of started off studying philosophy with the aim of studying theology. So it is kind of surprising that I ended up stuck in, in philosophy, but, you know, at Florida State and then um, especially towards the end of my undergraduate studies, I got so gripped by the problems in philosophy and the, you know, the views that philosophers were defending. And I really liked, you know, even though I have theological positions and commitments, I really liked exploring things using the tools of philosophy. And I just thought, well, why not see if this can work? My plan when I started studying philosophy was to go to seminary afterwards. That didn't end up happening. I ended up just studying uh, philosophy instead. Um, but of course, as you know, from the issues that you mentioned, right, death, immortality, mm-hmm. personal identity, free will, yeah. these are all things that overlap with uh, topics in theology. So yeah, I guess I'm still interested in theology. I just approach things from the philosophical perspective. Yeah, that's awesome. Was there was there a particular problem that kind of tilted you more towards philosophy? Was it free will or was it something else and it changed? Yeah, it was free will. I guess like many people, I started thinking about free will when I started thinking about the problem of evil. Yeah. Like, how, why is there so much evil in the world if God loves us and is able to prevent evil, that sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, some of the main responses to the problem of evil appeal to free will. And so I wanted to try to figure out what, what philosophers have been saying about free will, um, what my view on free will was, and that sort of thing. And then, yeah, reconciling God's providence or his control, sometimes, sometimes people call this sovereignty, um, over what happens, reconciling that with free will, that became one of my um, sort of guiding questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a big one, man. I, yeah. I love it. And we're, we're about to jump in. So I wanted yeah. to ask an initial question that we you can just kind of answer uh, bluntly which I know is very hard for, for philosophers <laughs> to do. It's, but we'll spend the rest of the time 
fleshing out your answers to these questions. So just uh, just kind of like a yes or no uh, answer for us. So this these initial questions, did our listeners freely choose to listen to this podcast? I hope so. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's, it's kind of hard because maybe someone has a gun to their head right now. Yes. But, I don't um, know all the details, but presumably, <laughs> yes. Okay. And uh, so were they were they determined by prior events, causes, or the will of God, something like that, to listen to this podcast? I think yes. Okay. So uh, that that should be, for, for a lot of us, uh, apparently contradictory. Yeah. You were determined by something beforehand, and yet you freely chose if, if no one had a gun to your head or something like that. Right. So now let's let's go about answering uh, or fleshing out those answers. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to start. So as, as you know, and uh, as I've said on the podcast before, my listeners range from undergrad students uh, to philosophy professors uh, like yourself. So we need to do a little bit of spade wor- work on defining our terms, which is, you know, good in philosophy anyways. So I wanted to just go in and get some kind of rapid fire um, definitions from you. Mm-hmm. Does that sound cool? Yeah, that's great. Okay. So let's, uh, how about, what is libertarian free will? Well, yeah. So to, to <laughs> define libertarianism, we're going to make reference to a bunch of other terms that we'll need to define, yep, right? Yep. Libertarians say that we have free will and that free will is incompatible with determinism. Okay. So then we got determinism. What's that? Yeah, and free will. Uh, so determinism, I mean, people use this term in different ways. The main way people use it Sometimes they'll call it physical determinism or causal determinism. Um, What they have in mind is something like this. Given the way the world was sometime in the past, maybe even a thousand years ago or a million years ago, given the way the world was then, and given the laws of nature, maybe they're all reducible to the laws of physics, maybe not, but given the laws of nature, there's only one way that the future could have unfolded from that point, given those laws. And so what that means is there's really only one physically possible future from any given point if determinism is true. Okay. So that that's how a lot of people are thinking about determinism. Um, but when you go and you start reading what scientists say about determinism, it's not always that neat. Mm. Uh, so that can just be the philosopher's term of art, and we can try to figure out whether we think free will is compatible or incompatible with determinism in that sense. And we're going to talk about this more, but you just laid out um, really uh, a brief sketch of the consequence argument, right? I gave the kind of uh, puzzle pieces that you'd have to work together to get the consequence. I mean, there's a little bit more you'd have to add, really. So the consequence argument tries to show that free will is incompatible with determinism. And it starts with the definition Mm -hmm. of determinism and then says, but look, if the way the world was in the past isn't up to you and uh, what the laws of nature are isn't up to you, then the inevitable consequences of those things, namely what you're doing now, isn't up to you. Yes, yeah. that's, that's a brief sketch of the consequences. Yeah, that's good. Thanks, thanks for uh, mm-hmm. clarifying on that. So, so we have a little bit about determinism. Now, how about uh, indeterminism? Yeah. So, I mean, strictly speaking, indeterminism is just the denial of determinism. Mm-hmm. But what that would mean is for certain events that happen uh, to not be determined by their sort of antecedent causes. So sometimes when people think of indeterminism, they think of random chance. Because if things aren't determined to happen in some way, well, then they could have happened in several different ways, perhaps. And it's just a matter of chance what yeah. happens. You might even think that, that the idea of a cause is incompatible with indeterminacy. But most people nowadays, including scientists who are thinking about what it would be like for an event to be undetermined, they, they're fine with saying that it could be caused, but probabilistically caused or indeterministically caused. Okay. Um, so when 
libertarians say that we have free will and that free will is incompatible with determinism, they think we need some kind of indeterminacy in the causal history of our actions in order for them to count as free. Uh, they disagree about where exactly we have to locate that indeterminacy, but yeah. that's sort of central to the view is that indeterminacy is required. And and so is there a, then a close connection between indeterminacy and, and PAP, principle of alternate poss- possibilities for, for free will? Um, on some libertarians' views, there's a very tight connection, but then yeah. there are other libertarians who um, deny the principle of alternative possibilities. So PAP says that it's more about moral responsibility as it's mm. typically formulated, but it says that to be morally responsible for something you had to have been able to do otherwise. Yeah. And that, that seems like, it seems like mm, the most like commonsensical way. If you, if you ask yeah. someone off the street, Hey, were you free to do this? Uh, if you weren't able to do otherwise people, go, well, no, you right. know, but, and, and there's people will do that and they go, uh, no, that's just not free will because you ask anyone off the street. And uh, I had mm-hmm. um, J.P. Moreland said that to me. I asked him a, a question after he came here to TED's and he had this whole argument for uh, he's, he's got a really great arguments for the immaterial immateriality of the soul. And one of them was the uh, he called libertarian free will argument. And I, I pointed out to him that his arguments just going against deterministic uh, views, uh, mm-hmm. naturalistic deterministic views, not divine deterministic views. And he knows this. It's not like I pointed out to him the first time ever, but he just goes, well, you know, that's not really what people think of for free will. And he's like getting kind of grumpy in his, <laughs> in his older age. And it was great. It was fantastic. Um, but he's like, yeah, I agree with you, but that's not what free will is. And so there's kind of these intuitive debates where you could point to our law system and be like, well, no, it's it's not the, the PAP doesn't matter in the court of law. It matters. Did you intend to hit that person mm. with your car. Cause if you didn't, then it's, it's negligence. But if you did, it's first degree murder or third degree. So people play these games with intuitions, I think a lot. Um, yeah. so yeah, we won't do that cause we're going to go in deep on this stuff. <laughs> um, so how about compatibilism? What's that? So compatibilism, I mean, it depends on what two things you're saying are compatible, but typically, um, a compatibilist in the free will debate says free will is compatible with determinism. Okay. But as we'll see, you could say, well, there's different senses of free will. And there's also this thing that I've already referred to called moral responsibility. I haven't really said much about what that is. We probably have an intuitive sense, but some people are compatibilist about, uh, compatibilists about moral responsibility and determinism. And that might be different from saying that free will is compatible with determinism. Mm. But it, we have to get clear on exactly what we mean by yeah. free will too. Maybe to go, since you brought up um, PAP, um, yeah. one natural conception of both free will and moral responsibility, as you said, ask, you know, the average person on the street, they'll think of um, their agency, the way they they act in the world as like going through a garden of forking paths where at various points you get to select which path you're going to go down from alternatives. There's not just one way that things can go. You have alternative possibilities along the way. And uh, so free will in that sense, involving the freedom to do otherwise or alternative possibilities, that's sort of built into the idea of PAP. That's what's required for moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you could think, and as we'll get into this, I'm sure, because yeah. I think this, you could think that that sense of free will is incompatible with determinism, uh, various kinds of determinism, and also think that moral responsibility nevertheless is compatible with determinism. So another way of putting that is that moral responsibility doesn't require that sense of free will. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And we're about to jump in on that, too. So um, 
like the, the classical compatibilists, if I'm not mistaken, they believe that PAP, the principle of alternate possibilities, is compatible with determinism. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They accept the truth of PAP, and they also think that, yeah, we can have the ability to do otherwise, even if determinism is true. Yeah. yeah. So when I when I learned about compatibilism, it was it was never that. And so we would have debates in class and all of us would be using different understandings of all these words. And some people right. would use, were using the classical understanding. I didn't even know that there was the classical conception of compatibilism, uh, which, you know, we'll talk about is is leeway compatibilism. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that until I read this book uh, by Michael McKenna and Derek per Dirk Paraboom on free will just recently. And I was like, oh, that. There's this like whole classical debate where they tried oh, yeah. to do that. And um, that's I, a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to get into the debate. It's um, yeah. it brings you right up to speed on where things are now, but it gives a nice historical approach, at least the last hundred years or so, what the free will debate's been about. Yeah. Yeah. And and this guy, Dirk Paraboom, he, he came on my radar because of like Guillaume Bignon's work and and some of these people um, using his his arguments or responding to them. And then I, I read over your dissertation and saw that he was on your board. Yeah, he was on my committee. That's right. Yeah, just we so met. fantastic. <laughs> he's a great guy. Love Dirk. He, but he's a. He, so this is getting in the weeds already. But he sure. he denies free will, or he's a free will skeptic. That's right, and a moral responsibility skeptic. If mm. by moral responsibility we mean something like um, deserving praise or blame for what you do. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I I didn't know that, but. I didn't know that when I started the book because he, he gives kind of arguments that a lot of libertarians have appropriated. So I'm like, Oh, he's a libertarian. And then I get to the end and I'm like, what? He doesn't, he's against everyone, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is great. I love it. Um, I don't love his position, but I love how he gets there. Yeah. Maybe it's worth mentioning. So we've talked about incompatibilism and compatibilism. Mm -hmm. So libertarians are the people who think incompatibilism is true, but also we have free will. Mm -hmm. uh, the flip side of that, the other incompatibilist position is to say free will is incompatible with determinism, but we don't have free will for some reason. And um, Dirk Paraboom has arguments against free will that lead him to that position. He calls it hard incompatibilism. Yeah, I love that. OK, that that's such a great point. There's like this web. So yeah. there are uh, determinists and there are indeterminists. There are uh, compatibilists who think that determinism is compatible with some sense of free will. And then there's... Uh, incompatibilists and they think that determinism is not compatible with free will and then when you're a when you're a uh, incompatibilist you can be you th you can think that free will and determinism are incompatible for two different reasons one because you believe in free will so you deny determinism or you believe so strongly in determinism that you end up just uh, denying free will so there's yeah, yeah one quick quick thing at the end that was great yeah. except not everyone who thinks that um, incompatibilism is true and that we don't have free will, not all of them think that determinism is true. One reason we could lack mm. free will is because determinism is true. In Dirk Paraboom's case, he thinks even if even if determinism yes. is false, we still couldn't have the freedom required for to be you know, deserving right. of praise and blame. That's so right. it's, there, there's so many <laughs> distinctions yeah. in positions in this and debate. That's another reason why I like that guy, because he just goes yeah. all in on it. And he's like, yes. well, even if this, even if no determinism, free will's out. Yeah, <laughs> that's just, right. Yeah. And he's sharp, man. He would eat my lunch on this stuff, even though I disagree <laughs> with him. Um, so we, we've got some of that going on. So let's talk about um, different, different freedoms. Okay. Uh, I added this in uh, to the notes, so I hope this doesn't put you on the spot too too much. But there's this kind of the classical understanding of liberty of indifference and liberty of spontaneity. 
you familiar with those terms or are those like theological terms? You know, it comes up more in like medieval philosophy and yeah. theology than in yeah. the contemporary debate about free will. So I don't think about them very much, um, but I'm familiar with them. And, you know, at the turn of the, you know, to, to the Enlightenment or the modern period in philosophy, philosophers were still using these terms, um, but we've sort of gotten away. We've gotten away from it in the last hundred years or so. Yeah, th- that makes sense. And I'm, I'm like, I'm a theology student, master student, and I, I wish that I was a philosophy student. So I spent all my time <laughs> reading philosophy. But we have these debates in class, and it's all over the board. It's liberty of indifference, liberty of spontaneity, yeah. determinate, and and some people are very good here, and some people are not, and. And so it's really confusing. So, um, yeah, we could just liberty of indifference in my mind is like it's it's pap, it's libertarian free will, and liberty yeah. of spontaneity seems to be more compatibilistic. D- does is that a fair characterization? Yeah, that's fair. I think one of the reasons that people have moved on from that in the contemporary free will literature is that the idea of being indifferent between options might suggest something like it doesn't matter to the agent which one they yeah. choose. Now, yeah. both are supposed to be compatible with their their causal history. So both are genuine options. They're, it's undetermined. But the way that, like, you know, libertarians now would defend their view, they would say, well, you know, agents can be torn between two things that both are very attractive to them. They're not really they're not indifferent. It's just that both are causally open to them. Yeah, so, but that's I a think, great point. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the same. It's it's related to the idea of PAP, the, the liberty okay. of indifference. Yeah, yeah. So then uh, let's let's go over two different um, categories of freedom. We got leeway freedom and source freedom. So can you lay out the, the I, at least two different times? Maybe, you know, there's even more, but there's in my mind, there's two different uh, types of leeway freedom. Yeah, that's right. There are two. Um, I don't know if any more. <laughs> there okay. probably will be if you <laughs> stick with this debate long enough. Um, leeway freedom sort of tracks this um this intuitive idea that freedom is like selecting paths in the garden and forking paths or something like PAP, the principle of alternative possibilities where um, freeway is leeway between alternatives. That's what it means to be free. And so you might think that whether uh, someone is attracted to the, the leeway conception of freedom tracks, whether they're an incompatibilist or compatibilist, but actually there are incompatibilists and compatibilists who accept the leeway model mm-hmm. or conception of freedom and then there are also, you know, incompatibilists and compatibilists that reject it or that don't think it's necessary, that sort of thing. Um, so it doesn't neatly track the other positions that we've talked about. But it it is this idea that um, freedom is the freedom to do otherwise yeah. leeway. Yeah. OK. Yeah, that leeway. So, yeah, some people would say because we have le- leeway freedom, we're incompatibilists. We think that we believe in freedom, but not determinism. And others go, no, no, no. I'm, I believe in determinism, but I, I think we still have a principle of alternate possibilities, even given determinism. It, yeah. it seems like in the modern debate, that's a, that the leeway positions, at least leeway compatibilism is kind of like passe. Are there still leeway compatibilists out there doing work? Oh yeah, they're out there. Um, I guess that's like, for, for me, among the compatibilist camp, I'm a compatibilist, but not this kind. That's like yeah. the enemy in, in my camp. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, Maybe that that was a more, I think, definitely from that book you mentioned by McKenna and Paraboom, they give the sense that that was a more popular position before the 1960s and 70s, before the consequence argument really became a powerful incompatibilist 
tool because the, the the consequence argument really tries to show that leeway freedom, the freedom to do otherwise, is incompatible with determinism. And you know, a lot of compatibilists um, were convinced by that argument. I'm one of those, yeah. and so that sort of rules out the leeway compatibilist position. But of course, you know, for any view in philosophy, someone's defending it. Yep, yep, that's right. So, so we have leeway freedom. Uh, and we also have another category called source freedom. And I, I think there's maybe two of these, but but maybe not. Yeah. Can yeah, you lay those out for us? Um, good, yeah, good. So if you don't think that the freedom to do otherwise is required for whatever freedom you take to be important, or maybe it's just moral responsibility, moral responsibility doesn't require alternative possibilities. So you deny PAP, then you're going to think of freedom and responsibility in terms of sourcehood rather than leeway. So what matters for your freedom or your responsibility is whether you were the appropriate source of your action, whether it was up to you in some sense. Now, of course, leeway theorists tend to agree that it matters that you're the source of your action. They just take sourcehood to involve or require leeway. Um, but the sourcehood view is supposed to be distinct in that it, it doesn't require leeway, or at least that's not you know, an important part of something's being up to you under your control, um, mm -hmm. your action. So as long as you're the source of it, uh, it's free and you're morally responsible for it, um, even if you didn't have alternative possibilities. That's the idea. And, you know, there are incompatibilists and compatibilists who accept this position. But once you're once you're in the sourcehood frame of mind, mm -hmm. um, it becomes a lot easier to defend compatibilism. And so I think within this sourcehood camp, the, the vast majority are compatibilists, although there are some leeway incompatible or sorry, source incompatibilists. Yeah, that, that shocked me when I first learned about it because, like I said, my conception of compatibilism was source compatibilism. And I was talking with with my friend Paul Gould, name dropping a little bit. And we we're we we're talking about you know, PAP and stuff like that. And he's like, yeah, I'm not I'm not really a PAP guy. I'm like, but you're not a, a source compatibilist. He's like, no, I'm a, I'm a source incompatible. I'm a source libertarian. I was like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. That's my thing. Get, get off of here. Uh, so both the source libertarian and that that's the right word, or is it source incompatible? I mean, no, it's probably the same, but. Well, they're not quite the same. Uh, In fact, Dirk Parabin would call himself a source incompatibilist, but since he denies free will, yep. he thinks he's just an incompatible. He's not a libertarian as well. Okay. But I think the majority of source incompatibilists are also source libertarians, Okay. probably like your friend Paul. Yeah, so... Source, um, source libertarianism and source compatibilism both say that, you know, in some way you have to be the, the source of your actions and, and desires and stuff like that. What's the significant difference between the two of them? Yeah, so the main difference is the, the source libertarian, source incompatibilism will say that determinism precludes sourcehood. Mm -hmm. um, and so the compatibilist says, no, you can be the source of your action um, in the way required for freedom and responsibility, even if you're determined and the source of incompatibilist will say no. Um, yeah. Well, I, I get that, but when I, I, I want to force them back onto PAP because it seems like, oh, well, that great. <laughs> okay. Cause it's like, it, it's like, well, um, why is it not compatible for the, right. the source libertarian? Like, is it, is it not compatible because you need a principle of alternate possibilities maybe, you know? Right. Yeah, the way that I like to put this, this is um, building on a, a puzzle for libertarians that's sometimes called the problem of enhanced control. Mm. If you're a libertarian, you think the kind of freedom compatibilists talk about, that's not sufficient for moral responsibility. So you've got to add indeterminacy in order to get genuine freedom and responsibility. 
But if that's your view, you think that adding indeterminacy into a causal sequence can make an agent have more control or more freedom over their actions such that they can be responsible for it. And so what would it be about adding indeterminacy that would enhance an agent's control? All you're doing, it seems like you're just adding little gaps or um, branches into the causal chain. It doesn't seem to enhance control. If anything, it might seem to take away from it. This is related to the problem of luck for libertarians. Uh, If I can plug my podcast, just this week we released an episode on that topic. So, uh, you know, people might be interested in that. Yeah, plug away. Yeah, I started that one. Uh, I I think you're right in that. And it it seems to me it's like adding a glitch. So it's like, okay, I'm controlling. And then it's like indeterminacy hit. And then, okay, now I'm back to, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think think the best response to this puzzle and um, the person who's worked it out the best is a libertarian named Christopher Franklin. Um, he's a friend of mine. He's he's a uh, great philosopher, and he's done a really good job at defending libertarianism. So he has a book. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the title. Maybe modest libertarianism. Okay. Um, he's got a book that came out a few years ago um, defending a, a version of libertarianism, including against this challenge. But his he he is a leeway libertarian, leeway incompatibilist, and so for him to solve the problem, you have to invoke this idea that we need alternative possibilities mm-hmm. and adding indeterminacy is going to get us those alternatives. But if you're a sourcehood libertarian or sourcehood incompatibilist, right? Um, what is the at the addition of indeterminacy going to get you if it's if you're not concerned about leeway or alternatives? Yeah, I think it's a big puzzle for source libertarians. Okay, I love that. Yeah, that that's great. More puzzles for them. Um, okay, so now let's, let's get into some of the specifics that, that you've worked on and, and you've added to the field. Uh, real quick, though, how do you define free will? What, what does it mean for, for Taylor Sear to, to believe in free will? Right. So um, when people ask me if, if we have free will, I tell them I work on I'm a philosopher. I work on free will. And their first question is, do we have free will? I say yes and no, uh, like a good philosopher. <laughs> and I make some <laughs> distinctions. Uh, so. It depends on what you mean by free will. So I think we need to just use the term free will in a stipulative way. We just need to give a definition of it and Mm -hmm. then say what we think is true of it, whether we have it or not, whether it's compatible with determinism or not. So the the ordinary sense of free will, the leeway sense, I think that's the ordinary sense of free will where we're talking about the freedom to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we don't have that. I think that's precluded not only by determinism. uh, I'm not sure whether determinism is true or not. I think maybe it's not, but... Um, it would also be precluded by divine foreknowledge, I think. And so I don't think we have that kind of free will. But I do think there's a sense of freedom, or I sometimes use the term control, which some people use as sort of equivalent to freedom in this context. There's a sense of freedom that's required for us to be accountable for what we do, morally responsible for what we do. And I think we do have that kind of freedom. And so it's a source of conception of freedom and responsibility, um, and I can motivate it. I think you're going to ask me to say some of what I've written on about this. There's mm-hmm. a host of things that when you put them together, they they sort of motivate um, the picture that I have of, of free will or moral responsibility as uh, the source of conception. Yeah, well, that's great. So, yes, uh, we have free will required for moral responsibility. If you did something bad, yes, we can throw you in jail for it. Um, but no, you didn't have the... Uh, uh, the principle of alternate possibilities you couldn't have done otherwise yeah at least okay. i don't think that's required maybe it's true that we do have have it i tend to think we don't have the ability to do oh otherwise. yeah but it's not required for moral responsibility yeah so whether it is true or not true yeah. doesn't doesn't, uh, doesn't matter yeah 
I guess I haven't told you how it is that we could be responsible or what kind of control we could have yeah. if it's not, you know, something like alternative possibilities. But um, I think basically what matters, this is overly simplifying things, but, you know, if you do something based on your reasons and you weren't coerced by someone else into doing it, well, that's, that's the kind of stuff that matters for whether it's um, up to you, whether we can hold you accountable for what you've done. So, and that all doesn't make any reference to alternative possibilities. I love that. And that, I don't know why I love it so much, but you know, I'm my, my people know that I'm a, I'm a Calvinist and this just completely makes sense to me that why, if, if I hit someone with my car, you have to ask me what reason did I have for doing it? And if it, if I was texting, then that's not really a reason for doing it, but it is negligence and I can be held responsible for that under those laws. If I, just instantly thought, I'm mad at this guy, I'm going to hit him. Then it's like, I don't I don't know what degree that is. I need to learn this because I talk about it all the time. Maybe it's third degree or second degree or something. But like if I planned it the day before and I was like, I'm going to go hit this dude, he's going to be here, then that's first degree murder. And my reasons matter. Um, and we'll, we'll get into this with uh, like Frankfurt cases and stuff like that. Um, but before we jump in, this was new to me from you, semi-compatibilism. And I, I just, I hadn't heard that before. Maybe I missed it in the book. Um, but what what is you you talk about this a lot in your dissertation? What is semi semi or semi compatibilism? Yeah, semi compatibilism is the name for a position that um, my PhD advisor John Martin Fisher introduced into the debate, um, and the way that he defines it is the freedom required for moral responsibility. We could have that even if we lack the freedom to do otherwise or the ability to do otherwise. So it's one way of putting it is if we define free will you know, in the garden of forking paths sense, the leeway sense, then um, moral responsibility is compatible with determinism, even if free will isn't. Okay. So it's semi-compatibilism because it's compatibilism about one thing, but not another. Yeah, that's great. So, so it is, it's not like a halfway, well, it's not like a halfway between compatibilism and, and uh, incompatibilism. It's like a specific type of compatibilism. It's a subset and saying like, I'm not saying all compatibilism, I'm saying this type of compatibilism. Yeah, I think that's the right way to think of it, especially since most of the contemporary debate centers around issues of moral responsibility. Yeah. And it's definitely a compatibilist position about that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, historically, people have um, kind of set aside the moral responsibility stuff and have been more interested in the metaphysical issues of freedom and freedom to do otherwise. And if you're thinking of the positions in that kind of debate, well, I think this is actually an incompatibilist position. So again, it just matters how you're using the terms and kind of where you are in the debate. Yeah. So, so would you say it? So, semi-compatibilism is a subset of source compatibilism. That's that right? right. In fact, it might just be source compatibilism. Okay. That's yeah. Because that, I read it and I was like, "That's that sounds like me. I I love this." Yeah. yeah. Another uh, term that people use to refer to semi-compatibilism is actual sequence compatibilism, because uh, whether you're free and responsible is just a sort of function of the actual sequence that led to your action. There's, it's not supposed to make reference to you know, the ability to do otherwise, alternative possibilities, something in some non-actual sequence. Okay, that's a good one. I'm going to throw that away. Um, so just, I, I pulled a quote from you just to summarize, I think what you just said, I develop and defend three novel views. One, that one's history can affect the degree to which one is morally responsible Two, that indeterminacy is no gain to the control necessary for moral responsibility. And three, 
that the requirements on moral responsibility for actions and omissions are symmetrical. Oh, you didn't, that three is new, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess we've gotten into the second one of those more than the other two. Yeah, yeah. So, so we could stay here and work on one and three, um, but I think we might be able to touch on it by just going over three, the, the, your three reasons for thinking semi-compatibilism is true. Is yeah, that, that sounds good. Okay, yeah. let's do that. So, so here are uh, Taylor's three reasons for thinking that semi-compatibilism is true. One, the consequent argument, which we've talked about, we're, we'll talk more. Frankfurt cases, and then three, our view of ourselves as morally responsible agents. So uh, let's jump in on the consequence argument. What what is that? And maybe a little history about you know PVI and let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. So I sketched it a few minutes ago. It's this. It's a classic argument for incompatibilism, where the things that are supposed to be incompatible are. Uh, the ability to do otherwise or the freedom to do otherwise, free will in that sense, on the one hand, and then causal determinism on the other hand. So I think this argument has been around in various forms, probably for millennia. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, um, it's become popular since the uh, 60s and 70s, um, thanks mainly to Peter Van Inwagen making it popular. Um, PBI, as you called him. So the most kind of the classic presentation of the argument is in a paper of his from the seventies. And then in hit the third chapter of his 1983 book an essay on free will. There's one of those sort of classic texts on um, yep. free will in the last, you know, se- several decades. Um, so there, and he gives three different presentations of what he calls the same argument. Um, some people, I mean, most of the debate has focused on one presentation of it, which um, is a modal uh, version of the argument. Um, modal has to do with, necessities and possibilities. Um, We don't have to get into the technical formulations of the argument, but the rough sketch I gave earlier went something like this. If determinism is true, right, what it means for determinism to be true is that given the past, given the laws, there's only one way the future can unfold, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Here are two things that seem true of our abilities. Um, We can't do anything to change the past or, you know, the past isn't up to us. Same for the laws of nature. You know, you, you can't do anything about the, you know, that about the fact that um, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, for example. Um, So it seems like um, if we have freedom in any sense, it's constrained by what the actual past was like, and it's constrained by what the actual laws of nature are. We can't do anything that's inconsistent with those things. But if that's the case, well, then all of our actions, um, given that they're the consequence of the past and the laws, uh, they seem to be inevitable and we don't have the freedom to do otherwise. Having the freedom to do otherwise would require, you know, being able to affect the past or the laws and, and we can't do that. That's the basic idea of the consequence argument. Okay. And so from that, so it's 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 saying, yeah, your history or history even before, before you, like one month before you, the laws and, and history where, where they were set. And if determinism is true, then a, a month before you were born, like you were going to come on my podcast because, uh, if we could look at all the states, if we, if we, uh, I forgot the philosopher, um, uh, shoot, dang, I would sound so smart if I could think of it. It's actually not, it's a scientist about someone who knows everything. It's his demon. Oh yeah. 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 I say Laplace or whatever. Uncultured swine. Not smart. (laughs) (laughs) So Laplace's demon knows all the the states that he knows everything that would happen. So he, he would know the future. If Laplace's demon like looked at, at, Taylor's life a month before he was born, he would know that he'd be on my podcast here in, in 2020. And so if that's the case, it seemed like, well, all these things are outside of your control. You have no 
uh, ability to do otherwise. So you, you're not free. And so from this consequence argument, it, it drives the two different forms of incompatibilism. So if you think it's a sound argument, then you either say, well, then I reject determinism because if determinism, then no free will. I think I have free will. So peace out to determinism or it, it seems right. And I think determinism is true. So no free will. Is that right? It bifurcates the, the group there. Yeah. I mean, um, people might push back on this idea that you have to like affirm determinism to say no free will because oh, like, right. with Again. Others, like nowadays, yeah. I mean, back in the day, especially before the 1960s, people were thinking that either, um, determinism is true and we lack free will or determinism is true and we have free will um that they were called soft determinists and hard yeah. determinists back in the day and yeah. you know some of the classic papers that people still teach in intro to philosophy have these um outdated terms we talk about theology all the time soft yeah, and hard yep. yeah still I mean, yeah, still very common but the reason they're kind of outdated now is because almost no one wants to take a stand on whether determinism is true or not given contemporary physics uh, there are deterministic interpretations of physics, but they're also indeterministic ones. And the majority of physicists opt for indeterministic interpretations of quantum mechanics. Yeah. Um, so anyways, for that reason, you know, people like Dirk Perubin will say we don't have free will, not because determinism must be true or something like that, but because either way, whether determinism is true or not, we wouldn't have free will. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I, I love Everyone wants to stuff everything in the quantum level nowadays. Yeah, you right. go, there's indeterminacy. We can build it all the way back up, and maybe they're right. I don't. I don't think they are. But uh, so Paraboom wouldn't rely on the consequence argument in order to say that there's no free will, right? I know he yeah, has he other ones, but yeah, he doesn't um, okay. because he thinks there's another argument. Maybe we'll talk about it some called yeah. the manipulation argument. That's the sort of nail in the coffin for any compatibilist view. Yeah. So he's not so much worried about relying on the consequence argument. Yeah. Okay. But so this is the first of your three reasons for semi-compatibilism. Right. Um, so just can you summarize why you think um, this is an argument on its way to uh, defending semi-compatibilism? Yeah. First, I think it's a really good argument to, to deny its soundness, right? You're going to have to deny a premise like uh, that we're constrained by the actual past Right. Yeah. In other words, you're going to, have to give up the fixity of the past or you're going to have to deny the fixity of the laws. And those things look, I don't know, they look very plausible. So it seems yeah. hard to, deny. Um, you know, some people will object to specific versions of the consequence argument, which employ principles that maybe there are counterexamples to. But I think the rough sketch I gave, it, it shows that there's some kind of powerful argument in the neighborhood here. Maybe we haven't found the best formulation of it, but yeah, get, Rejecting the soundness of the argument looks pretty implausible to me. So if the argument's sound, well, then um, we should be incompatibilists about the freedom to do otherwise and uh, determinism. And that's just one component of um, semi-compatibilism, in my, my view. Yeah. And that, that should make sense more um, for, for the listeners. That should make more sense of your semi-compatibilism uh, phrase, phraseology, because you are an incompatibilist about leeway freedom and uh determinism exactly but you're compatibilist about moral responsibility so yes i love it that's that's great um so let's go to frankfurt cases your, your second reason okay this is maybe the main line of support for semi-compatibilism especially for the positive component that we could be morally responsible even without the 
leeway freedom that the consequence argument seems to suggest is incompatible with determinism. So a Frankfurt case goes like, it's, they're named Frankfurt cases because um, Harry Frankfurt, a famous philosopher, uh, published a paper in 1969 that used several of these cases and well, changed the sort of landscape of this debate in, in important ways. I, he, he didn't come up with the very first Frankfurt case. They weren't called that before him. But <laughs> there's a really famous one in, in John Locke. Um, Locke has this example of someone who um, goes to visit a friend in a room. And as they go into the room, the door locks behind them, but they don't know that. Um, and so the, the person um, freely, he thinks, stays and hangs out with their friend. But it turns out they weren't free not to stay. They weren't free to leave the room. Um, what the Frank, what Harry Frankfurt's cases do is they take the lock on that door and they move it. He moves it inside the agent's head. So in Locke's example, we might say, yeah, okay, yeah, he wasn't free to leave, but he was free to decide to leave or to try to leave. Um, it's just that the door would have prevent, prevented him from kind of manifesting his free will in the world. Yeah. Uh, what Frankfurt cases do is they move that lock inside the agent's head to try to show that an agent could be um, sort of unable to decide otherwise and still look free and responsible. So here's a Frankfurt case. Imagine that uh, this guy Jones is um, about to vote in a presidential election. Uh, there's a timely example. Uh, yeah, it's a timely example when we get yeah, this. Yeah, it is, but everyone's going to be so triggered now. It's <laughs> great. So Jones doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense in 2020 or even in 2016, but Jones has no idea who he's going to vote for yet. He can't mm -hmm. make up his mind. Um, and so what he's decided to do is he's going to force himself to make the decision when he's in the voting booth. Um, and there's this other person, a nefarious neuroscientist, who has installed a device in Jones's brain that lets him, uh, this neuroscientist, monitor Jones's deliberations. Because this neuroscientist really wants uh, Jones to vote for candidate A rather than candidate B. And so Jones is there in the voting booth, and he's deliberating, he's making up his mind, trying to settle on which candidate to vote for. And all along the, uh, you know, all um, while all the while, this neuroscientist is monitoring uh, what Jones is thinking about. And the device can do one other thing. If uh, this neuroscientist presses a button, it'll force uh, the Jones to decide to vote for candidate A. But as it happens, he can see that Jones isn't leaning towards uh, voting for candidate B. There's no sign that he's going to vote, uh, decide to vote that way. And so Jones decides to vote for candidate A and does vote for candidate A. And the neuroscientists, even though they could have intervened the whole time, uh, they don't actually intervene. They just are sort of waiting in the wings. Mm -hmm. So this kind of case looks like a case where two things are true. Uh, one, Jones seems morally responsible for deciding to vote for candidate A. You know, he did it on his own. We might even say of his own free will. Uh, he wasn't forced or coerced. Nothing made him act in that way. And yet, it also seems true that he could not have done otherwise than decide to vote for candidate A. Because if he had shown any sign that he wasn't going to decide to vote for candidate A, uh, the neuroscientist would have intervened and forced him to. And, you know, in that scenario, if the if the um, intervener, this neuroscientist had forced him to vote, to decide to vote for candidate A, he wouldn't have been free because he would have been forced or coerced into doing it. Yeah. Um, but as it happens, this, you know, this neuroscientist didn't actually do anything. They just watched. Yeah. I, I love those cases. I, I even like, um, you know, so Frankfurt put it in the, in the, in the brain, but even Locke's case is so great because Locke's lock case where he puts his lock <laughs> in the door. It's Locke's like, yeah. Imagine if your if your friend was like uh, he was super lonely and everyone hates him and no one wants to hang out with him and so you dedicate 
yourself to to go in to visit him for two hours. And it's like, dude, you're you're a great guy, man. That's awesome. You you spent two hours with him, but unbeknownst to you, I locked you in there. Um, oh, someone else locked him in there. Lock locked him in there. <laughs> and uh, so I I could talk to him when we we're talking about our friend Steve who visited John, who's the recluse or whatever. It's like, well. Dude, uh, wasn't wasn't he? Didn't he do something good? Well, he was locked in there. He couldn't have even left if he wanted to, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, but he didn't try to, and so it was still was morally praiseworthy for him to hang out with the recluse because he wanted to do it. Didn't matter if he had no other option. And and same thing with with the voting case. I, there's some weird weird stuff that I don't super follow uh, in in counter examples to Frankfurt cases about like not seemings, but like. Um, this little like little nudge towards um, wanting to, to do otherwise. And that's the principle of alternate possibilities. What are, do you, do you remember off the top of your head where those, whether those, what those are called? Yeah. Sometimes people call those flickers of freedom. Flickers, they got yeah. that from my advisor too, from John Martin Fisher. Oh wow. Um, he's done a lot of work on Frankfurt cases. Um, part of the reason that this idea of a flicker of freedom comes up is because in response to Frankfurt style cases, defenders of PAP. That, so mm-hmm. Frankfurt cases seem like a counterexample to the principle of alternative possibilities, because if the agent is responsible and they couldn't have done otherwise, well, then PAP is false. That's yeah. just a straightforward counterexample. So in response, some people have said, well, you know, Frankfurt case proponents face a dilemma. On the one hand, they either assume determinism or on the other hand, they assume indeterminism in the case. And if they assume determinism, well, you know, whether the agent's morally responsible is uh, we're sort of, you know, some people are going to deny that if you really build in determinism into the case, then it's going to be kind of question begging to say that it's a counterexample to PAP, that the agent really is free because, you know, many people think being determined would rule out his freedom. Yeah. Um, but if you assert, if you assume indeterminism in the case, then it seems like you're leaving alternative possibilities in the case. There's some kind of flicker. Like if, if it really was undetermined that Jones would decide to vote for candidate A, if you really could have voted for um, candidate B is instead, that was um, a genuine, um, you know, it was genuinely undetermined. Well, then not even this neuroscientist with his device would be able to tell the moment just before mm. that, which way he'd go. Yeah. So now, now that's not quite a flicker because you might think you could sort of make it. <laughs> there are various ways of building on Frankfurt cases. Um, yeah. Frankfurt himself has kind of left this debate. He's called it a, a young man's sport or something. <laughs> <laughs> All these counter examples and then yeah. new cases. And yeah. Um, in response to more sophisticated versions of the case, though, the, the flicker theorist, the person who thinks there are sort of still flickers of freedom says, yeah, if, the, the difference between the agent doing it on their own and doing it as a result of Black's intervention, that's the name of the neuroscientist, the neuroscientist forcing Jones to do it, that's still a kind of freedom or alternative possibility. So we still don't have a counterexample to PAP according to that response. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it is a young man's game. Like the, the way they, they go in and make all these different scenarios. And well, now it's three seconds beforehand and they have given him a pill, which also I, right. I, I wanted to make up my own uh, and I wanted to mix it with uh, a trolley problem. Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, for those who don't know, a trolley problem is like, would you pull the lever to save one guy uh, or to save, save five, five guys instead of one? And does it matter then if that one guy is then your brother, would you do it then? And so it gets all complicated. So I wanted to make a Frankfurt style case of a trolley problem and it took me about two hours and then I deleted it all and went for a walk because it, it almost <laughs> wrecked my entire mind. <laughs> it was really dumb. Um, but so 
so you got Frankfurt cases here, and and you think that's that's your second reason for um, moving towards um, semi-compatibilism. The first is uh, consequence argument. So you know, PAP is not uh, c- compatible with determinism, but determinism is compatible with moral responsibility here through the Frankfurt cases. So, yeah. so there is kind of an intermediate step because all that the Frankfurt style case really shows is that uh, moral responsibility doesn't require alternative possibilities. And so, yeah, if you're, if your worry about determinism was that it ruled out alternative possibilities, yeah. there's no threat to moral responsibility. But some people think maybe determinism is a threat to moral responsibility for some other reason other than that it rules out alternative possibilities. And that's where you get the sort of worries from sourcehood um, incompatibilists. Okay, okay. Well, so then your third reason here is that we have the view of ourselves as being morally responsible agents. Can you explain that? I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, I guess, but. I mean, I, I, I don't know your listeners and uh, I don't know. Well, I do know a little bit about you, so I know that you already accept this, but most of us regard ourselves as morally responsible for what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever you feel guilt, you're taking yourself to have been, um, to be blameworthy for having done something. Um, whenever you, resent someone else or you're indignant about what someone else has done, you're implicitly um, presupposing that that person is morally responsible for what they do. I think this is, maybe it's not the foundation of interpersonal relationships, but I do think it's a foundational kind of presupposition to see each other as um, agents who we can be in relationship with. We have to presuppose that we um, are, are free in this sense, that we're morally responsible for what we do. Um, a lot of our attitudes towards each other wouldn't make sense uh, without presupposing this. So I think our view of ourselves, um, I mean, we'd have to revise our view of ourselves quite a bit if we came to see ourselves as not responsible. That's my Yeah. Point. And and along with that, probably our view of others then too. So someone steals your wallet and why are you upset about that? You know, it's they're not morally responsible. They're just acting on the laws. And um, yeah, I, I think that's great because that's, that's kind of common sense. Uh, I don't know if anyone calls it folk, but they do like folk psychology yeah. kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it's like our, our folk understanding of ourselves and it's even more in depth. Like Peter Strassen goes into that and lots of different people on the, the philosophy of personhood. So, so you, you came to this view because first free, free will, uh, uh, PAP or um, PAP or, or leeway freedom is incompatible with determinism. So maybe I should drop determinism if, if you need PAP for moral responsibility, but you don't need PAP for moral responsibility. So I can still have moral, moral responsibility and determinism. And I need to do that because I think naturally I'm a moral agent, but where does your commitment, I guess, to determinism come from then? Because that, that seems to be like this through line through all three of these reasons. Yeah, I guess I want to leave it open whether determinism is true or not. And so I want my yeah. view to be compatible with all the possibilities. And that's going to make it so that our view of ourselves as um, morally responsible agents doesn't depend on what the sciences end up telling us, whether the best interpretation of quantum mechanics is indeterministic, yeah. or deterministic, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't act, I mean, I guess when you get into uh, my theological positions, right, when I believe that God has exhausted foreknowledge of the future, even that in some sense he's decreed what will happen. I think that also precludes alternative possibilities. It's relevantly similar to the threat from determinism. So I do think that um, we do need to have, uh, if we are morally responsible, we do need to have a view that um, is compatible with that kind of determination. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's great. So that that's a, a theological commitment in there that if God has decreed something or if he has uh, exhaustive foreknowledge or both, then for you to have a principle of alternate possibilities in 2020 uh, to go against something that God knows, then that would wreck his, his foreknowledge or, um, or it would wreck his decree. He said that you're going to do this, but you had the alternate possibilities. So you did that yeah. instead. So there's the, the theological commitment, but, but something even deeper than that before everyone jumps on him and goes, well, you're a Calvinist. So that's wrong. You're, you're also, you're, you're, you bring up in your dissertation, this idea of resiliency, which you've just laid out for us that if, if determinism turns out to be true and there's some irrefutable evidence for it, our position is still resilient against that because we've already said it's okay. It's semi-compatibilist moral responsibilities. Okay. It's compatible with determinism. So whether or not it's true, our your view is more resilient than a, a source libertarian view, right? Yeah, and I, I'm taking that. Uh, that's not an argument that's uh, you know new to me. That's straight from um, John Martin Fisher, who's kind of pioneered the semi-compatibilist view, building on you know the the inside of Frankfurt cases. Um, okay. But yeah, he's done a lot to. I mean, here and there, he's done um, a bit to motivate this idea that we should care that. Um, our view is compatible with the deliverances of the sciences, or at least, you know, we shouldn't think that the physicists and cosmologists can come and show you that you're not responsible. That seems like the wrong, uh, maybe not the wrong kind of reason, but the the wrong kind of thing to find out. Like if you read on the front page of the New York times tomorrow, scientists discover that determinism is true. You, that wouldn't shake your belief that, uh, you know, you should be proud of what you did in the past or you should feel guilty about some bad thing you did. That's you're not that's not going to affect those. Yeah. And this was related to some of the ideas in the philosopher you mentioned, P.F. Strawson. Um, I'm not a full Strawsonian, but I do think this is insightful that we do take a, a kind of um, interpersonal perspective um, that where we take each other to be responsible agents and finding out about determinism wouldn't shake that perspective. We couldn't be shaken from that kind of perspective. Um, And so it's good. I think this is, maybe this isn't an argument for semi-compatibilism, but it's something that sort of counts in its favor that it has this implication that even if we were to find out that, yeah, God's decreed everything that happened or um, yeah, the laws of physics are deterministic, uh, we would still be safe in our view of ourselves as responsible agents. Yeah, I love that. So for me, and I like that you said it counts in its favor. For me, when I was reading your dissertation, it was like, well, I had this question about resiliency. And if that's the the tipping factor, uh, tipping the scales towards towards um, source compatibilism over against source incompatibilism, because source incompatibilism would, would be open to being refuted by uh, discovery of determinism in, in the physical sciences. And I thought, OK, well, I'm a source compatibilist, but I also believe uh, the arguments uh, for like the immaterial soul, I'm a dualist. And mm-hmm. I think that like the arguments from reason, the various ones, uh, like planning is not as much, but like, um, yeah, C.S. Lewis and um, Victor Reppert and those kind of guys, they, they say, well, if physical determinism were true, then you couldn't know it to be true. It's a self-defeating statement because you've been determined not by reason to come to believe that, but by uh, causes, by, by physical causes. And so right. physical causes aren't rational. And so you have no rational justification. So it's eliminating the warrant or it's eliminating the reason that you have for even holding that. And so I thought, well, then it seems like I'm stuck between source compatibilism and source incompatibilism because if resiliency was the only thing pushing us over. But since we talked 
today already about this. Source incompatibilism still has to make sense of why of, of indeterminacy yeah. and and are they successful in uh, distinguishing themselves from PAP? And right. so there's more to it than just uh, resiliency, though I, I do like resiliency, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the um, both sourcehood, both types of sourcehood theorists, incompatibilists and compatibilists, tend to agree that Frankfurt cases show that we don't need leeway freedom to be responsible. Now the question is, does determinism or indeterminism, what kind of difference does that make to responsibility? And source incompatibilists tend to give a different kind of argument against compatibilism, um, sometimes called the manipulation argument, which yes. I think we'll get but, um, that's great. Oh, you're so good at setting that up. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, before we get into that, the, yeah. uh, there is, I mean, I think that the problem of enhanced control for libertarians is also something to factor in here. So it's like, you've got these two sourced views, the compatibilists and the incompatibilists, the incompatibilists raise the manipulation argument against the compatibilists and the compatibilists can raise the problem of enhanced control for the sourced libertarian. And, yeah, we have to weigh these arguments, see if there's good responses to either of them. I tend to think that the manipulation argument isn't going to be totally successful, as we'll see in just yeah. a minute. But I do worry that the problem of enhanced control, maybe it's not decisive, but it's it's hard for me to see how the sourcehood theorist is going to solve it without reverting to a leeway conception of freedom. Yes. Yeah. Love that. All right. Set us up. What, what's the manipulation argument? Yeah. So, um, again, I think that this kind of... the the basis for this argument has been around for a long time because it's related to worries about God setting things up so that we act in a certain way. Um, but Dirk Paraboom and um, uh, my advisor at Florida State, um, Alfred Mealy, Al Mealy, um, they've both developed contemporary versions of this worry and it's come to be known as the manipulation argument. And so the basic idea is um, there's two premises and a conclusion. <laughs> the conclusion is that free will or let's just do it in terms of moral responsibility. Moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism. And the two premises have to do with a certain case of manipulation. So one version of the case uh, from Al Mealy, it's sometimes called the zygote case, the mm -hmm. basis for his zygote argument. Um, there's this goddess, Diana, who wants to, she wants a certain event to happen 30 years down the line. In particular, she wants someone to be murdered. Uh, she's not a great goddess. Um, <laughs> Uh, so she, what she does is she creates this zygote, um, call it Z, and she implants this zygote in another agent, Mary, and she knows, because she's in a deterministic universe, she knows that given the state of the world uh, at the time that she implants this zygote in Mary, um, state of the world then, and she knows the, the law, she knows the laws of nature. She can sort of deduce that 30 years later, this zygote will have developed into this agent, call him she, Ernie. She's, she's Laplace's demon. She's similar. Yeah. She's not, um, well, it's tricky to know, to figure out exactly how much she knows. She okay. definitely knows the laws and she knows, well, maybe she doesn't ever look at what the whole state of the world is at any other time, but she can at least look at the state of the world at this time and There's sufficient knowledge for knowing that Zygote will kill this guy later. Yeah, that's okay. right. So Ernie's going to end up murdering this other person in 30 years. Okay. And so what's really what's strange about this case and what makes people think that in this kind of case, Ernie lacks freedom and responsibility is um, Diana has created Ernie kind of like a tool to, yeah. to fulfill her wishes, right? She just has, she's the only reason she's created him is so that he will live out the life that she knows that he'll live, including performing this murder. 
Um, and so she does this and Ernie does the murder. And now we're, the basis for the argument is when you hear that case, what do you think of Ernie? Do you think he's responsible for the mur- for doing the murder or do you think he's not responsible? And the manipulation argument starts with the idea that he's not responsible. And many people have that intuitive um, response when they hear the case. He's not responsible for the murder, maybe because of the way that Diana created him or something about uh, the manipulation in this case. Mm-hmm. Now, she's not manipulating him in the sense of like, tinkering with his brain during his life. Um, sometimes there are manipulation cases like that where a neuroscientist is, you know, overnight tinkering with someone's desires and values. Yep. This is a case of initial design where she just sets him up from the beginning to live out the, the life that she wants him to live. I think those two types of cases are importantly different, but anyway, yeah. um, in this case, so the, the first premise of the argument is Ernie, you know, based on this case anyways, Ernie is not morally responsible uh, for committing the murder. But then the second premise is what we might call the, the no difference or no relevant difference premise. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea that when it comes to ordinary agents in deterministic worlds, ordinary in the sense that they weren't created from uh, by goddesses with specific intentions <laughs> for them, right? Just imagine like, uh, yeah, n- no goddess involved at all. Maybe even um, no divine being whatsoever. It's just natural events, um, chance maybe. Um, but in that kind of scenario, a deterministic scenario, there's supposed to be no relevant difference, uh, no difference relevant to moral responsibility uh, between an ordinary determined agent and Ernie in the uh, Diana scenario. So if the first premise says uh, Ernie's not responsible, and the second premise says no relevant difference between Ernie and ordinary determined agents, the conclusion that moral responsibility is incompatible with determinism follows. So, yeah, that's the basic idea of the manipulation argument. That's great. So, so um, it's, it's different than the consequent argument in, in that you and me and others would say a consequent argument. Okay, fine. Um, But, but moral responsibility is fine. It's, it Mm -hmm. still works. Determinism is fine. This is saying, no, 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 this is specifically aiming at moral responsibility. And, and um, I'm interested in the manipulation argument um, for a lot of the same reasons you are, but also, um, and maybe this is the same reason for you, but. Diana, the goddess, it's it's a similar analogy to God, Yahweh, who I am writing uh, my thesis def- defending, saying that there is divine determinism and moral responsibility as well, because it, it's so natural, it just naturally comes over and it's it's easy to yeah. go, well, let's just call Diana and we'll go with goddess because it's it's a little bit easier than, not not as much as on the line here, but it's it's relevantly similar. The, yeah. the argument just goes right over to it. So, um you, I believe you've said that manipulation arguments aren't just against uh, de- um, source compatibilism or, or compatibilism, but also against libertarian accounts. Is that right? Did you flip it on? on this yes. Side? Yeah. So one of the main things I've written on manipulation arguments is trying to show that there are worries about manipulation for any positive view of free will or any view that says that we're free and responsible. And so the, the way to try to do that, I'm not sure. Sh- Ultimately, I'm not sure if it's successful. Some of my friends who have read the paper, um, uh, well, a couple of papers, they're not convinced. And that makes me think, well, maybe I'm missing something. But the um, the case that I use is a case of indeterministic manipulation. Mm-hmm. And that's not original to me. Other people have invoked that kind of case for different reasons. But my, my goal was to try to show you could give a parallel scenario to the Diana scenario, except where all of Ernie's actions are undetermined. And yet, because Diana has created him and set him up with a specific life plan. And she's ready. She's kind of like uh, the neuroscientist in the Frankfurt case too. She's ready to 
um, intervene to force uh, Ernie to act in the way that she wants him to. Yeah. Um, in my case, she'll just kill him if, if he doesn't act <laughs> the way she wants. Um, but he doesn't know that. And so it seems like he's acting freely. He satisfies even libertarian conditions on free will. And yet he still seems manipulated. So if your your thought about the original Zygote case was the manipulation precludes responsibility. Well, I think you should say the same thing about the um, indeterministic version. And so that's, it seems like a parallel um, challenge to libertarian views of free will, um, just exactly parallel to the challenge to compatibilists. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a little bit like two quote quay, like, well, yeah. you know, with sauce for the goose sauce for the gander here. Um, so it's a problem for both of us. Does that, does that, um, it doesn't get rid of the problem. That's right. But it yeah, in fact, um, you know, Dirk Paraboom, one of the people who's famous for developing the manipulation argument, he'd be fine with that because he thinks <laughs> libertarianism is false, right? We don't have free will. Right. Um, yeah, so it is a kind of two quote response. And my thought was some, some libertarians use the manipulation argument to sort of motivate their view over compatibilists. It's, yeah to try to show that like compatibilism comes with theoretical costs that libertarianism avoids. So basically I was just trying to level yeah. the playing field here, show that we all get the same costs. Yeah, that's great. And so that's significant. That's not just like a two quote like na 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 boo boo. It's like, no, if, if you're using that to pick between the two, you don't get to do that. And um, Greg Welty does that with this, this bullet bill thing against uh, Molinism. Which uh, which is a great book in in Calvinism, the problem of evil, and it, it's a similar thing. It's like, well, Bullet Bill is determined. I, I won't go into all that things, but it's saying you don't have a you don't have a lead over us, and so yeah, yeah maybe I, I don't have a super, I don't have a knockdown argument against it right now, but neither do you, and so don't say that yours is preferable to mine based on this. Yeah. I love that. That's great. I think that's a good way to do philosophy. So like a lot of people think you should defend the positions that, you know, you've got really good arguments for and when you've got decisive arguments against all the other positions. But, you know, it, once you start doing philosophy for a while, you realize there's good arguments on both sides of a lot of issues. Yeah. And so like trying to figure out what the best view is often requires kind of, you know, taking a holistic approach, you know, taking all these considerations into account and then making an informed judgment on the basis of all of them. And so, yeah, it might seem like I'm not making that strong of a claim. Like I'm not saying libertarianism must be false because of my manipulation scenario. Yeah. I just want to show, well, what the relative costs of the different positions are. Yeah, I really like that that type of philosophy. I also like the type of philosophy when a philosopher will write a position that's not his own and he'll yeah. like write defending it. It's like, wh why, dude? Like, it's not even part of your thing. Like, oh, I just thought it would be interesting. It's yeah. like, oh, that's like the childhood kind of wonder that philosophers should have. That's great. Yeah, that, that stuff's fun. Yeah. Um, any, anything more on the, on the manipulation or, do, or can we move on to challenge of luck? Well, maybe I'll just briefly mention the two ways that, um, compatibilists try to respond to the manipulation yeah, argument, that's kind of where, where I land. So there are two premises. So assuming that the argument is valid, which means the conclusion really, it, you know, follows from the premises, the two options are deny premise one or deny premise two. And those have been given, um, names by Michael McKenna and others have adopted them. Oh, yeah, um, hard and soft line responses. Yeah. So the, the soft line response tries to say the second premise is false. There is a difference between just ordinary determinism and then determinism by an agent, you know, who's intentionally set you up. Um, 
you know, given my theological commitments, I think that can't work. And I'm, I'm working on a, a paper for um, a book, a chapter on, on trying to figure out the best thing to say in response to soft line responses. The other responses, um, oh, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Initially, I would think soft line would, um, would be, would fit with theological positions because I would think, well, the manipulator is not significantly similar to God because if if a if a human manipulator does something like that, it's, it's wicked because actually he's putting himself in the place of God. But then you can since since we went with this goddess, maybe that is the case. But but saying like so the there's a disanalogy between the goddess and God because the goddess is more like a deistic God who's letting the laws and stuff happen, whereas you know the authorial analogy, you know God's like more like an author, and so he is he is not manipulating, but he's using the actual causes and events that naturally take place intramundane to, you know, everyday life. And so that just is what it means to, to, to think and reason. So even though he's determined it, he's determined it by the natural ways that we form beliefs and stuff like that. What, what's, what's help me out with that. What, why don't you like that? Yeah, I guess um, most people who hear, well, I think, a lot of people who have the response that Ernie's not responsible in the in the zygote case with Diana, they're going to say the same thing about it just being God who's setting everything up. Yeah, he might not have um, evil intentions. Although I think some people think that the the God of Calvinism is kind of right, wicked. Right, totally. <laughs> but the, the idea is we're not building that in it. Well, we don't have to. And they would still say, yeah, determined by this other agent, that means not responsible. Um so the soft line response just tries to say, yeah, something about being determined by another agent undermines uh, the determined agent's responsibility. Whereas being determined not by another agent, that would be totally fine with, you know, compatible with responsibility. Oh, so the the muddled kind of case that I, I brought up, would, would, would that fit more with hardline you're saying? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So the okay. hardliner right. says, um, even if you're determined by another agent, whether good or bad, I guess, um, that's not going to undermine your responsibility. Okay. Um, I tend to think, and not, you know, it's not just theists, um, you know, who think this, not, um, Michael McKenna is not a theist. John Martin mm-hmm. Fisher is not, but they're both kind of sourcehood compatibilists who think the manipulation argument doesn't work. They take the hard line and say, it doesn't make a difference to your responsibility. Um, whether this sequence, uh, this actual sequence that led to your action was initiated by chance or by a, an agent. Um, and I think that's right, because what's relevant to our responsibility is, you know, what it is that brought about your action. Was it you doing it for your own reasons or not? And, you know, if a manipulator comes and enforces you to do something against your will or someone coerces you into doing something, that would undermine your responsibility. But yeah. just being created to have certain reasons for doing something, that doesn't, at least on my view, that doesn't undermine responsibility. Yeah, that's where I'm at, too. Yeah, I just misinterpreted yeah. that. Yeah. And and so... Um, People call McKenna's case, uh, you know, biting the bullet. It's just, yeah. I'm just going to bite it, put my face in the bus off. So what? Who cares? And just eat that. I I love when people do that when they because <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're you're setting them up to be afraid, and it should be like, oh no, but it's like, yeah, so what? Okay, I'm going to do that. And yeah. sometimes sometimes it gets annoying. I think sometimes when planning a desert, it's a little annoying. It's like, why should I believe that? It's like, well, you know why? Yeah. But um, McKenna also has this nice way of responding, which is so. 
there are different formulations of the manipulation argument. Some have more cases. They're like a series of manipulation cases. And he basically just says, well, if you accept the, the no relevant difference thing that's connecting the cases or in the, the simplified version that I gave the zygote argument from Al Mealy, if you accept the second premise, well, then whether or not you think free will is compatible with determinism um, or wh whether or not you think that Ernie is responsible, I mean, it's going to depend on your starting point. If you are already inclined to be a compatibilist, that should give you reason to accept that, uh, that Ernie is responsible. Yeah. Whereas if you didn't have a commitment about that, or maybe you are already kind of a committed incompatibilist, of course, you're going to take Ernie not to be responsible. So the question is whether this gives any new, new reason or whether it, the biting the bullet here is really that costly of a theoretical commitment for the compatibilist. Yeah. So you're kind of dissolving the, the intensity of the objection. there. Okay. It's a, it's one, it's like a chewable, chewable vitamin. It's like a really soft bullet that you can digest. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I like that. Uh, okay. Challenge of luck. Yeah. And you know, we don't have to go through all, all of the different challenges. <laughs> yeah. I do. Uh, I, 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 I really like luck and I like, I don't know much about uh, omissions. Uh -huh. So I just wanted to cover those ones because I, I don't know a ton and I'm curious about it. Yeah. So about luck, very briefly, because I think we can be morally responsible, um, whether we're determined or whether indeterminism is true, um, I'm vulnerable to two different kinds of luck. And I'm not, you know, my view is not uniquely vulnerable to these kinds of luck, but um, it, I am susceptible to both worries. So the first worry is, I call it the worry from, ind uh, sorry, from deterministic luck. And this is the worry that, look, <coughs> if it, um, what you're doing a certain action is ultimately the sort of causal consequence of factors beyond your control, stuff from the past, the laws, right? It's sort of a matter of luck that you have the character that you have, that you're acting on these reasons. This is sometimes called the problem of constitutive luck because how you're constituted at the time that you make a decision or the time that you mm -hmm. act, um, that seems out of your control. Yeah. Uh, so I've, uh, other people have responded to this worry. It's not just a worry for compatibilists. Um, um, I've tried to sketch a, a new type of response that says um, you can be free and responsible, even if kind of entirely constitutive lucky, constitutively lucky. You had no say over your character, your desires, your reasons, even um, <laughs> you can still be free, even when, con you know, entirely constitutively lucky. But I think that we actually do have some say over how we're constituted at later times. As we grow up and as we learn things, especially about morality, as we make decisions, we can influence the kinds of things we'll take to be reasons later on. We can influence we're like shaping, our... We're shaping ourselves for the future yeah. decisions. Yeah. yeah. Not always for the better, sometimes for the worse, but yeah. we can we influence our own characters probably indirectly. I don't think we ever sort of choose to be good or choose to be a bad person or anything like that. Yeah. But we do things that have effects on our constitution. And so my view is over time, agents can become more responsible by mitigating this constitutive luck by shaping their character. So that in other words, they enhance their control over their, their life and their choices over time. But I am committed to saying that at the very beginning, whenever agents are first morally responsible, they're morally responsible, even though entirely constitutively lucky. Um, but I think that's a problem for anyone who thinks that we're free and responsible, whether you're a libertarian or a compatibilist. Um, but, and you could adopt uh, an incompatibilist version of my response uh, if you're a libertarian. Okay. Yeah, because tr traditionally I've associated the challenge of luck with indeterm indeterminism or libertarianism. Sorry. Yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, that gets us into the the second type of luck I mentioned, the 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 indeterministic uh, luck challenge. Because if you think that um, free will is compatible with being undetermined, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's this worry about chance or luck at the time of action. It, you know, if right up at the mo- uh, right up until the moment of choice, it was possible that you chose something else instead. Well, it looks like in one possible scenario you choose the way you actually did, and in another possible scenario you make a different choice. Uh, it seems like it's just uh, a roll of the die, a matter of chance that you do what you do, right. that you make that decision. Uh, this is the classic uh, problem of luck for libertarians. Now, my view doesn't require that our actions be undetermined in order for us to be free, like a libertarian mm-hmm. would. Right. Um, but I do think that even if our actions are undetermined, even if right up to the moment of choice we could have done otherwise, that we could still be morally responsible. So I have to have say something about why the problem of luck actually doesn't succeed. So this is where I can help out the libertarian a little bit. I can offer yeah. a solution. I mean, I really don't give a new solution to the problem of luck. I kind of build on people like um, Al Mealy, who's got his own solution in um, his book, uh, Free Will and Luck. I'll just um, cut. I'll just cut any anything that you're helping the libertarians with out. We'll just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I do in the the chapter of my dissertation that's on this is I try to show that um, what compatibilists should do is say. Uh, luck doesn't undermine freedom and responsibility. So luck by itself isn't a threat to libertarianism. But if we're really interested in why we would be a libertarian in the first place, like how indeterminacy is supposed to enhance control to get back to the problem that we were talking about earlier. Mm. Well, I think the fact that they're requiring this kind of luck at the time of action, there's no way that that's going to enhance the agent's control. Uh I don't think it totally undermines control, but you're not going to get more control than a determined agent would have. Okay. So that's the way I'm trying to kind of put pressure on the libertarian, even though I'm helping them I like with one it. problem. Well, yeah. because you're saving yourself and then you're <laughs> weaponizing it a little bit against them or just, just against their plausibility. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. That's good. Um, okay. Can we, can we talk omissions and then just some random free will questions? Yeah. Yeah. So um, for someone like me who accepts that Frankfurt cases show that PAP is false, there's a problem, you know, Peter Van Inwagen's famous for developing this problem. Uh, more recently, um, my friend Philip Swenson, who's a, a libertarian, his a leeway libertarian, has done a lot to press this worry against um, Frankfurt style compatibilists like me. And the worry is from cases of omissions. So almost I think probably everything, every case that we've imagined so far in this conversation has been a case of an agent making a decision or performing an action. But one feature of our agency is sometimes we omit to do certain things and it seems like we can be responsible for our omissions just as well as we can be responsible for our, our actions or our commissions as sometimes people put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, here's, here's the worry. Um, even if Frankfurt style cases show that we can be responsible for actions, even if we couldn't have done otherwise, it looks like the same kind of case doesn't work for omissions. So here's my favorite version of the case, and maybe Phillips, too. Uh, it's called Sharks. Imagine mm-hmm. that um, this guy, John, is walking along the beach, and he looks out into the water, and he sees a child struggling in the water, and the child's drowning, needs help. Um, and John, being the selfish guy that he is, he thinks, I could jump out there in the water. I could, I could rescue the child. But, you know, I'm just going to keep on walking along the beach and not even try. And so he decides to keep on walking, and he omits to even try to save the child. He omits to save the child. You might think, wow, what a bad guy, definitely blameworthy for omitting to save the child. 
But now here's why the case is called sharks. It turns out there's a bunch of sharks in the water between where the child is and where John is on the beach. And so if he had tried to swim out there to save the child, the sharks would have prevented him from getting to the child anyway. So in some sense, he couldn't have done otherwise than omit to save the child. And in this case, it looks like we should say he's not blameworthy for omitting to save the child. Of course, he's blameworthy for being a jerk and for not even <laughs> trying. He didn't know about the sharks, so right. that wasn't an excuse. He's blameworthy for that. But, um, you know, for someone like me who thinks you can be responsible even if you couldn't have done otherwise, it seems like I should say he's blameworthy also for omitting to save the child, even though he couldn't have saved the child. And yeah, yet that's the that's exactly the thing that Peter Van Inwagen and Philip Swenson think is implausible. It seems like he's really not responsible for the omission in this case. Yeah, I, I guess I just don't know why that would be motivated uh, for for them because I just imagine a conversation. What, what was the guy's name? To, who John? John, like John is a jerk. Um, John John should have tried to save that guy. Yeah, but he would have died by sharks. Yeah, but he didn't know that, right? So it's like that that lack of knowledge there means that he still is morally responsible. I wonder. He's definitely- responsible i think everyone will agree he's blameworthy um for something and he is a jerk so now the question is what is he blameworthy for is he blameworthy just for being the jerk or for maybe even deciding not to try or for not trying but is he also blameworthy for not saving the child oh okay okay well um what if and i think yeah yeah well well so i i think um is this the um i I already forgot your friend's name who you debate with oh yeah this is the one that you did on capturing Christianity was Philip. Yeah, he brought up a similar case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He and thinks this is a big, one of the big challenges. Besides the manipulation argument, he thinks this is a big challenge for semi-compatibilists. Okay, so I, I don't know if I'm understanding the the being um, morally responsible for omitting to save to actually save instead of wanting to save. Because what if what if he wasn't a great swimmer, or what if like there's all sorts of cases that can come up. I think maybe one of you brought up like a glass wall that he couldn't see or something, but there's all sorts of things that could come in. Maybe a, a bird swings down and grabs the kid and accidentally saves the kid or something like, I don't, I just don't understand why he would be morally responsible for not actually saving him. Are you committed to that? To saying that? I he- do think that's what we should say. Um, I mean, think of uh, an ordinary case of omissions, like where um, there's no sharks. Suppose you just, you're just you driving down the road and you see someone, um, you see a car accident and there's like no one else around and you think I could call 911, um, but you just don't, right? The thing you're blameworthy for in that case, it seems to me, is omitting to call 911. Like the reason you did that is maybe because you were selfish or you were a jerk or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it seems like just like we should say that when you do some positive action, uh, and you're blameworthy for it, we should say when you omit, you can be blameworthy for that too. So I want to take a action for, oh, for omitting the action, not just the intention. Right. Okay. So like with the, with the phone case, what if someone programmed your phone not to uh, call out to nine one one? And so mm-hmm. like you, you call, you, you try to call or, or you don't call, but, but yeah. even if you did try to call, it would have gone to uh, Quiznos instead. I don't know if Quiznos <laughs> is still around, but yeah, it would go to Quiznos instead of nine one one. So you, you couldn't have actually called 911 even if you you wanted to, but you didn't want to. Yeah, that's a great case. I mean, that's it, parallel to the Sharks case. That seems to a lot of people to suggest that you're not blameworthy for omitting to call 911 in that case. Yeah. Maybe blameworthy for not trying, but you're not blameworthy for the omission. But you think that you would, you would say that he is so blameworthy? 
Yeah, and here's why. It seems, and this is here, this is where I'm actually in agreement with um, my friend Philip. He's really pressed this worry that it seems hard to draw a line between a Frankfurt style case that involves actions and one of these omission cases. What's mm. going to be the relevant difference? Because in both cases, the agent can't do otherwise. Um, and so taking an asymmetrical response here is going to require trying to figure out what's different in these cases that doesn't just have to do with lacking the ability to do otherwise. Yeah. Um, other, you know, the, the famous semi-compatibilists out there, John Martin Fisher and uh, Carolina Sartorio, they've done the most work on um, these kinds of cases. And they both think that um, in sharks and in this phone case that the agent's not blameworthy for the omission. So what I want to try to do is at least figure out if it's plausible to take a symmetrical response where we just say, I mean, maybe this is a, a hard line bullet biting response in the omissions yeah. cases. But I want to say, no, no, no. Just like in the Frankfurt action case, we've got um, responsibility for the omission in this case, when they, even though the agent couldn't have done the omitted thing. Yeah. And that, that would, it makes sense because that would be the stronger claim. And so let's see if the stronger claim works first. And if it doesn't, then we can turn and figure out some kind of asymmetrical uh, yeah. different, uh, situation. That makes sense. I don't know how, I, have you thought through, I, I guess I didn't get to this part in your uh, dissertation. Have, have you, are you successful in that? Well, um, you know, with every argument that I put <laughs> forward, I would never claim to know that I'm successful. Right, right. <laughs> um, there, there is a, um, an article form of that last chapter of my dissertation that's been published now. It's in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy. So people can read it and uh, yeah. you can find a preprint of it, like a penultimate draft on my um, academia.edu page for free. Um, okay. It's called Moral Responsibility for Actions and Omissions uh, in Defense of Symmetrical. I don't know. It's such some, some long title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You'll know from the title if you've just listened to this conversation, though. Yeah. Um, in any case, I try to give reasons for taking the symmetrical response that go beyond just saying that I don't think that the um, asymmetrical responses of Fisher and Sartorial work. Philip has already done all that work and show that there are problems for that response. Okay. Oh, man. Maybe I shouldn't ask about omissions. Now I'm not going to sleep tonight. This is good. I'll have to go and read. I'll read that, uh, that paper online. It is, a, it is the hard kind of case, I think. I think this might even be a bigger challenge than the manipulation challenge. So, wow. yeah, you'll have to tell me what you think if you ever read it. I will. I'm not. I'm, it's, now it's in my head. It's a splinter in my mind. That's really good. Um, can we can we run through just a quick, uh, a couple quick free will questions? Yeah, sure. um, okay. So what do I want to go through? Okay. Um, how about acrasia? I know that's another old word. Um, mm -hmm. But like weakness of the will, is that is that possible? I think so. So, you know, famously, Socrates and Plato had these arguments that Akratic action is impossible. So whenever you um, you act against your better judgment, really, you're not acting against your better judgment. You really are judging that the thing you're doing is best. Um, I think that you can judge some course of action to be best and yet, you know, desire the opposite and just the motivational strength of your desire can, you know, lead you to act against your better judgment. So like to give an example of uh, weakness of will that's close to home for me, right. Eating an extra slice of pizza when you know you should be done. Right. Yeah. Um, you might think you're, you're acting against your better judgment. You think really, I should not eat another piece of pizza. And yet your desire for another piece of pizza is so strong that it seems to me it's possible that you could go ahead and do it, but against your better judgment. And that's okay. a case of accretion. Okay, so that would be like genuine accretion. I, I I don't want to make it too like I don't want to pick on anyone or anything. But like if you were if you were an addict, 
yeah. if you're a pizza pizza addict, maybe, and if that was a real thing, yeah. and it was like a neuro, maybe it is, I don't know, but it's like a neurological thing where you're actually addicted to pizza. You don't have control over whether you eat that, or or if you do, it's like very small, and you want to stop, but you find yourself not being able to. Yeah, is that genuine? Like, is that acrasia then, or is that something else? Yeah, I think that might be a case of acrasia plus some kind of lack of control that might not be there in my case. It might be that I have control, enough control to resist the temptation, but I can still act acratically. Okay. Um, yeah, the addict case is interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about this a little bit more recently. Um, because my view says you can be responsible for something even if you couldn't have done otherwise, you might think, well, what about the addict? How, how am I going to go about saying that the addict... Um, who sort of wants to do otherwise than take the drug, but d- takes the drug anyway. It, am I committed to saying that they're culpable for that um, or they're morally responsible for that? Um, I think what matters is why the agent's taking the drug. I think you could have two different addicts that, you know, the the strength of the addiction could be the same in both cases. And one of them could take the drug because they are addicted or because they couldn't have done otherwise. And in that case, I'm tempted to say, we at least mitigate responsibility. Yeah, maybe it's, they're exculpated. But then, in a case where someone is a willing addict and they they like um, they're addicted to the same to the same drug to the same strength, and yet they don't have, see any problem with the addiction. They they want to take the drug, and you know they're not acting against their better judgment. I'm more I'm tempted to say that they're just as responsible as some non-addict that takes the drug for the same kind of reasons. Yeah, I like that. I think that that makes complete sense to me. I wonder even if there's um, a history kind of element to it. So like mm-hmm. one person was forced to to eat pizza until they became addicted yeah. and now they're eating it. But but this other guy willfully chose. And so now he's not if you if you did reason that way, that now he's not morally responsible. He's still morally responsible for putting himself in that situation. In the, in yeah, that's exactly right. OK, yeah. So this, this is related to what I said in response to constitutive luck, because uh-huh. my view is that if you didn't shape your sort of psychic profile or your, your character, your desires, if you didn't have any control over that, you know, maybe you could still be responsible, but you'd be way less responsible than someone who hadn't, you know, did shape their um, character, their constitution. So yeah, there's a, there would be a difference in, you know, these addicts histories. If, you know, one of them was forced by someone else um, to become addicted and the other became addicted of their own free will. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I like that a lot. Um, just one or two more here. I, the um, there's another one that's just not super motivated for me is the problem of God's foreknowledge and free will. Because I am pretty staunchly Calvinistic, I think that God determines what's hap- what happens, and so He doesn't need to look down a corridor of time to see what happens. He doesn't take in information. I think that would actually mess with my understanding of God that He would learn something, and I don't think He learns things. So I. I think like I, I maybe it's because I'm a Calvinist. I don't see the huge problem. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're a divine determinist, I don't think there's a problem for for um, foreknowledge and free will. Maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong in that? Is there something I'm missing, or what? What's the big deal with that? I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think you know, for someone who's committed to um, this stronger view of God's sovereignty or providence where he's determining everything, but the worry is probably going to come from that. Right. Right. So that's why I always want to have that conversation when people talk about foreknowledge, like, well, let's talk about determinism instead. Yeah. I do think though that um, the worry about foreknowledge 
arises, I guess, independently of the question of whether God's decreeing everything. And so on my view, um, so you do think that God has foreknowledge of everything that will happen. That, I mean, that's consistent with your view. You just think, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. You think that comes from his decree. Not, it's not that it's, his knowledge is, you know, he's learning things by looking down the corridor of time, right? Right. Through his time telescope. And, um, and, and it's not, it's not even if you don't want to use a time telescope, it's not even because of B theory that he's outside looking at it in his, in his ever present moment or whatever his eternal moment, sure. his eternal present, but because he decreed it, maybe he, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. He decreed it. So the reason I think it's still an issue, um, one that you're going to have something plausible to say in response to, I think, and that, I mean, my view is partly motivated by worries about divine foreknowledge, my semi-compatibilist view, but the idea is like, no matter what you think of, you know, God's decreeing or not, or how he knows things, once you admit that God does know um, what will happen in the future, um, it looks like we have a parallel argument against free will to the consequence argument. So the consequence argument tried to show, given the past and laws, you know, we're not free to do otherwise. Parallel kind of argument works when it comes to God's foreknowledge, right? If God infallibly knows what we're going to do in the future, uh, if we have the freedom to do otherwise, then we better be able to make it so that God could have a different belief or a false belief. And those things look like things we can't do. Yeah. Uh, so I think you do have a similar kind of argument. No matter where you think God's foreknowledge comes from, I think you, you can get a parallel argument to the consequence argument from divine foreknowledge. Okay. But so if you're if you're a divine determinist, then it's like, so what, right? Is, right. That, is that okay? You're right. Because presumably if you're a divine determinist, you think um, we could still be free and responsible even if God's determine, determining everything that we do. If God's determining everything we do, well, presumably we have to do, or it's inevitable that we do those things in some sense. Yeah. Um, so the God's foreknowledge also makes it inevitable that we act in certain ways. Yeah. No problem, I guess. And, and I, so for me, I'm like, I, I don't want to just toss down the gauntlet and be like, well, I'm a theological determinist. Boom. It's like, no, that's where all the, for me, that's where all this stuff comes in. Cause well, can you be morally responsible? Isn't God then the author of evil, all this stuff. And it's like, I, I see a lot of those coming up directly in the, the free will and, and determinism uh, conversation as, and your answer to that, if you go with the determinist route, gives you answers to freedom and foreknowledge. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I guess I see it as I, I'm already, since I'm a semi-compatibilist, I'm okay with accepting this argument from divine foreknowledge that it precludes the freedom to do otherwise. And so once you have yeah. that view, I mean, you could say the same thing about God's decrees, even if they rule out the freedom to do otherwise, we could still yeah. be irresponsible. Uh, so, I mean, you get parallel arguments here and this, the same kind of response can work, you know, the same way. I like pressing the argument from foreknowledge, um, especially against uh, sort of other theists or raising yeah, those of to other views. Because it's, yeah. you know, if it's a really, if it's a good argument or if it's parallel to the consequence argument, which many theists accept, well, it sort of puts pressure on you to say, <laughs> well, maybe we should be semi-compatibilists. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great. It's if. I, I believe the same thing. Yeah. Um, that's good. Uh, maybe, maybe one more. And I, I really don't, if, if I put you on the spot here, we can cut this river. Uh, there's, I always forget this dude's name and the study, but there's this neuroscientist who studied brains and told you to raise your right hand. And then he looked yeah. at what, do you remember his name? The Benjamin Libet. Libet. Yeah. The Libet, Libet experiments and stuff. Um, have you thought much about that enough to like, tell us uh, what you think about it? Yes, well, enough to at least to refer you to a place to read more about this if yeah, you're interested. Good. 
I, I think ultimately there are problems with all of these kinds of studies and they don't show what a lot of the scientists claim that they've shown. Yeah. In a lot of cases, scientists don't have the, enough of the conceptual background in the philosophical debate to substantiate the claims they're making about that's right. yeah. being disproved and all that, which is unfortunate. I hope that more scientists learn the philosophy because there, there are interesting studies we could do that would be relevant to figuring out what kind of free will we have. Well, yeah, uh, or just bring a philosopher on board. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. And you know what? There have been um, projects that combine these things. So, for example, um, at Florida State, Alfred Mealy has um, done, he's had big grants from the Templeton Foundation that have yep. supported not only philosophical and theological work on free will, but scientific work too. Um, so, because, you know, I've studied with Mealy and I've read a lot of his work, um, I've learned a little bit about what he said about the Libet cases and there are others, um, Wegener, and there's a, there's other kinds of worries in the area from science. Um, he has two excellent resources that summarize the, um, the the studies and also provide good responses to them. One is um, a dialogue on free will and science, and then the other book is just called Free. Um, and they're both well, they're not free, but they're they're cheap. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can get them, you know online or I think they, they're selling they're for sale in many bookstores too because they're kind of written for a popular audience okay and so the, the Libet cases um, just for the, for the listeners it's they look at your your brain scans and they ask you to raise your right hand and to kind of mark down I think there's different cases and stuff like that but mark down when you decided in your mind to make this choice and then they look and they see there's a spike in your neural activity you know, a, a millisecond or whatever beforehand so it seems like your physical causes made you do that, even though you think it was your intention. And so it seems like, well, no, there's no free will then because it's just your physical causes giving yeah. rise to all that. Which, yeah, I, I, I think, I wonder if it's Mealy who, there's a, you know, the show Closer to Truth? Yeah. So I think he may have done an episode on that whole project. It was like a couple year project with the Templeton and there's philosophers and scientists and all these people. And yeah, I, I do wish because sometimes the scientists go, we have the we have the data here. And so right. you're all wrong. We we just work with science. You guys sit in your armchairs. And it's like, well, there's so many things that you could just blast. I could just blast you with right now. External world skepticism and stuff like that. <laughs> like I want to. And so I'm not even I'm a, I'm a theology student, but I still get angry for him. Yeah. Um, well, OK, Taylor, we're we're going to record a uh, a little bit about the, the movie Tenet. So for all our listeners. This is where we're going to have to leave you. This has been Parker's Pensies. Check out uh, the Free Will Show on Apple, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcast, uh, all the good stuff. I think I saw it and I watched it on, or listened to it on Google this morning. It's all over the place. You can find it. Follow them on Twitter. Um, Taylor, thanks for thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I love your show, and this was this is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, man. That that's huge. It, it's always great when a, a true philosopher says they like the show because it gets me all fired up for the next two weeks. Nice. All right, signing off. See you guys.